Richard invited me to talk about possible blind spots in commission that I see, and I thought that was presumptuous of me. So instead, it would be, I think, more helpful if I told you what I see that's encouraging to me, and then we'll move into the, to the last session. And uh, I, I've got 10 things listed, I'll just tick them off, and I don't think any of them will be new to you, but um, I'll say them and, and then perhaps tell you why at the end they're, they're so encouraging. Um, th these are the marks that I see both in talking with your leaders and in, in watching this event happen. Um, a devotion to the Bible and its exposition at the center and the, and the root of all things. Number two, a commitment to uh, robust, God-exalting, reformed theology. Number three, a uh, commitment to be led in a biblical way by godly, humble, spiritual men as elders. Number four, a, a, a rigorous and intense commitment to church planting, the word missional would be commonly used in America for that mentality, um, a heart for the poor. Fifth, a global vision, not just London and its global dimensions, but uh, the globe and the unreached peoples outside of England, culturally flexible on the things that are not essential, willing to be different from congregation to congregation, uh, relationally intentional. Uh, Richard used the word thick the other day when we were talking together, and I, I see that intentionality in the network of, of churches. And then lastly, uh, not risk-averse would be a negative way of saying courage. Um, th those are the things that I love. I, I, I see them, I love them, I'm encouraged by them. And then I left out an absolutely essential one, but I thought instead of making it 11, because 10 was such a nice round number, that I would just say like a, like a big bubble surrounding them all is a commitment to prayer. Because we are about a supernatural work, and if God doesn't, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so you call down that supernatural power in all those other things, through prayer. Now, the, the reason that's so encouraging is because I suppose I've been coming over to England, not, not often, but for 20 years or so, and I think um, it might have occurred to you that along the way, uh, both on the American side and on the British side, it, it might have felt like Americans were the innovators and the, and the make it happen uh, entrepreneurial types, and, and you guys go to school on that and, and do your best. Um, whether that was your mindset or not, that's just utterly opposite the way I feel. I feel like if, if I had, could, have, could have been a part of something like this 35 years ago, as I was beginning, I would have done a better job, a way better job than I did, and therefore it would, would, not, it would not even be the, the least strange to me to say to any of my younger guys that are at our seminary, you should go spend a few months with commission. So don't, don't if, if you've ever had the mentality, and maybe you haven't, and I'm being presumptuous to suggest it, but if you've ever had the mentality that, that, that American have the, those guys over there have the church know-how and, and you are the traditional maintainers, um, you can just be done with that as far as I'm concerned. So that's really, really encouraging to me. Let me pray for you and we'll jump in. Father, I want to thank you for what I see, not only with commission, but FIEC and Acts 29 and, and the Gospel Partnerships and New Frontiers and other groups I'm sure I don't even know about across the land that are, that are energetic, centered on the Gospel, 
rooted in the Bible, exalting a sovereign God, doing mission and willing to spend themselves and take risks and not just maintain. This is a glorious evidence of your presence and power. And so I praise you for it and am so happy to be a little part of it now. And I ask you to come and give us grace, truth, faithfulness, humility, vulnerability to your change in this last hour. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what we've seen so far. Power is the capacity to get what you value, and therefore the way it's used will reveal your values, and thus it can be an expression of worship or idolatry. Money is a cultural symbol that is exchanged for things you value and therefore can become a display of worship or of idolatry. Sex is one of the pleasures that people value and how you pursue it within God's ordaining ways will reveal whether it or God is your God. Underneath those three definitions and how they work to display God's value in your life or the value of something else, underneath those we, we saw some foundational realities from Romans 1 that we are created and then we are given revelation in many ways in order that we might glorify and thank God. And so the meaning of human life, the meaning of existence, the meaning of the universe is at its core all things to be used to show how magnificent God is. This universe is about God. You know, sometimes I've heard skeptics or atheists shake their heads at the notion that Christians could believe that on this infinitesimal planet where there is a self-conscious being called man could believe that God created the universe about that. Because as far as we know, it's just so vast and empty. And I say, it's just, you got it totally upside down. It's not about that. That is to show this little infinitesimal people something little about God. The universe is to display God to that little planet. It's not about that little planet. It's about God. And the universe is God's best effort to say, that's how big I am. That's how strong I am. That's how glorious and magnificent. The galaxies are all about God, not man. Just, there's nothing unusual about it at all. The disproportion between the universe in all of its vast glory and in infinitesimal little man is perfectly rational if you're God-centered, if God is all, if God is the reality in the universe, and man is his little amazing worshiping group. So we've learned that that's why we exist, and therefore money, sex, and power are in the world for us to use in order to make God look great. 
And then we discovered another foundational reality, namely that we have all exchanged the glory of God. Everywhere we've looked, we have seen it, we have known it in some deep sense, and we've suppressed it, and we have preferred other things to God. And that's the arch heresy and the greatest outrage of the universe that people prefer other things to God. They exchange. They see God. They trade God. They embrace their death, call it their glory. And that's the tragedy and the outrage of history. The image we used at the end of the last hour was that um, all of the parts of our lives, and sex, money, and power are three of them. You could add many more, like family or work, are like planets in a solar system, and they are designed to be held by the massive beauty and blazing gravitational pull of a sovereign and all-satisfying God at the center of our lives. And when, when He's there and He is all to us and all-satisfying to us, then the planets are moving perfectly in their beautiful, God-glorifying, soul-satisfying orbit, sex, power, money, all circling the sun just the way they were designed, and nobody has God at the center like that until they are born of God. And so the whole universe is out of order because we replace the sun with little moons and little asteroids and little crazy things at the center of the solar system of our lives, and the planets are flying all out of order. We're murdering each other and killing each other and destroying each other's sexual lives and manipulating and controlling and exploiting each other with money and power. And what people wonder, what's wrong? Say, well, where is God? Well, that doesn't have anything to do with it. It has everything to do with it. He is everything. And if you treat him like he's nothing, don't expect anything to work, because he didn't make it that way. He made the universe and our souls for him to be at the blazing center. But it's all fallen apart, and money has been used for greed and covetousness and theft and bribery and embezzling and boasting, and sex is used for fornication and adultery and pornography. and public nudity and, and God's glory, which was what our bodies were for, is turned into shame, and our shame is made into human glory and power in every manner of self-exalting dominion and exploitation has come about, and we are in a great mess because of having, as Romans 3.23 puts it, fallen short of the glory and I take 123 to get it, I mean 323 of Romans, to get its meaning from 123. And 123 says, they exchanged the glory of God for images of mortal man. And 323 says, they fell short. And if I put those two together, I think the, the literal meaning lacking in 323 means we, we lack the glory of God because we've traded it, we've exchanged it. And that's what Paul considers to be the universal plight of the human race called sin and why something needs to happen. Psalm 1611 says, In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
That's what you were designed for. You, you were designed for full and forever pleasures. That's what it says. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And what have we done? Well, God tells us in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So you look at the fountain of living water where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, and you say, yuck. And then you start digging. This is what all human beings are doing in London. This is digging, digging, trying to find it. And you will never find it by digging. That's a suicidal dive with money, sex, and power at the controls. The remedy we saw was a restoration of the glory of God to the center of our affections. Not just the center of our theology. That won't work. I was asked the other day how some Reformed leaders in America have been able to be such bullies. How can you be a bully? How can you be a manipulative power monger if you have a sovereign God? And the answer is, he, he's not cherished like a little child cherishes a big, strong daddy. He's fit into your life as a kind of weapon, kind of tool to do your thing. If, if the affections are not ravished by God so that we become like little children, thrilled to be in our Father's presence as an all-sovereign God, our theology probably will become an instrument in destruction. This is why the emotions are so important, that they be transformed and, and changed very, very deeply. So now, what do we want to do today? Um, what we want to do is realize that in order for that restoration of God to the center of our affections to happen, a, a massive double obstacle has to be removed. The wrath of God has to be removed because God is very angry about this exchange, as He indeed should be and would be unrighteous not to be. To be looked at as the infinitely valuable God, to be said yuck to and to reject you and exchange you for, for dirt that I'm going to dig in the rest of my life looking for something like you, that's wicked. And God should punish people that do that, and He will. And therefore, that's the first obstacle that has to be solved. Every one of us deserves to be punished eternally for that kind of insult to an infinitely holy God. And the second thing that has to be removed is, I don't like God. I like me. So God's a problem because He's angry, and I'm a problem because I don't like Him. 
this is not going to make it for a good future for me. So where are we? There are three things God has done. God is one of His glories. In fact, according to Ephesians 1.6, it is the apex of His glory. Namely, God is a God of grace. A God of great mercy. Who doesn't mainly enjoy being angry. He mainly enjoys being merciful. God does have a ranking in His emotions. He is angry, and He is compassionate, and He does delight very much more in being compassionate, and His anger functions as a foil eternally for the magnificence of His compassion. That's another set of messages we could talk about, but that's what I believe. Therefore, in His mercy, He has done three things to solve this problem. And I'll just take them one at a time, and you could, you could guess what they are. Number one, He has sent His Son to die. That this anger problem, this vast alienation between me and God because of my horrific offensiveness in exchanging His glory for lesser things could be overcome. This could be overcome. His wrath could be removed. His fatherly care for me could be restored. And all the obstacles could be taken away. So the first thing He does is the cross. And I'm going to give, I've chosen my verses carefully to fit the theme. There's so many verses you could use, right, to establish the truth of the gospel effort of God to reconcile Himself to sinners like me. And here's the verse I'm going to give you. 1 Peter 3.18 goes like this, Christ also suffered once for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Now, it may be that some of you, and I would assume a lot of you, have felt discouraged at hearing me describe what we ought to be in our affectional passion for the glory of God. That He should be more precious to us, more satisfying to us, more beautiful, more valuable to us than anything else. And your heart whispers to you, I'm not sure that's true for you. And you feel scared or discouraged or uncertain. And this is the point where I need to step back and say, do you remember verse 18 of Romans 1 where it said, in in unrighteousness, in unrighteousness, we suppress the truth of God's glory and we embrace other things. Well, that word unrighteous is the word used in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous. So as God looks down on this tent and He sees hearts that prefer other things to Him, He doesn't just get angry. He says, I'm going to fix that. I am going to fix that. And the first thing I'm going to do 
is put my son as perfectly righteous who never came within one whiff of exchanging my glory for anything else. I'm going to put my son out there to take their place and bear that anger that I feel so strongly towards their idolatry. I'm going to put him in the place and I'm going to pour out my wrath on him. So I'll read it again. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the truth-suppressing, God-exchanging, unrighteous. And then here's the key phrase. That He might bring us to God. That, that verse is paramount in my understanding of the gospel for this reason. I know that there are precious truths that we preach in the gospel and terminate on them when they, in fact, are not the ultimate termination. What I mean is this. Christ died that my sins might be forgiven. That's glorious. Christ died that I might be justified or counted perfectly righteous in the presence of a holy God. That's glorious, and that is not the ultimate goal of the cross. Christ died in order that His wrath might be removed. That's glorious. And that's not the ultimate goal of the gospel. Christ died that I might not go to hell. That's really good news. And that's not the ultimate goal of the gospel. This verse expresses the ultimate goal of the gospel. I'll read it again. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. All those other things, forgiveness, justification, removal of wrath, escape from hell, are all means to getting to Him, to getting to Him. I often ask people, why would you want to be forgiven? Everybody's, you know, we're singing and waving our hands. And, yes, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. And, and I say, yes, yes, yes. Why? There are a lot of bad answers to that question. A lot of God-dishonoring answers. So if I offend my wife in the morning, and then at breakfast there's ice in the air, her back is to me, she's at the sink, this, this relationship is broken. It's my fault. What needs to happen? I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to repent. And, and she needs to give me forgiveness. Why? why? Why do I want forgiveness from her? Now, here's a bad answer. If I don't get forgiveness, she might not make supper for me tonight. A lot of people answer God that way. Here's another bad answer. I hate having a guilty conscience all day. I want to get this fixed now because I don't like having a guilty conscience all day. That's a bad answer. It's true. It's just true. It's true. It just has nothing to do with her value. God's value, right? Christianity is good for my psychological well-being. Thank you very much, God. Take a vacation. I've got what I want. Psychological well-being. 
Get it? You see what's going on? If, if we don't get to God through forgiveness, through justification, through propitiation, through escape from hell, through removal of wrath, if we don't get to God and love Him and treasure Him and own Him and He's everything to us, it hasn't happened. Salvation hasn't happened. That's what it's about. It's about Him. It's not about me getting forgiven, me getting out of hell, me getting free from wrath. It's about me getting to God. I'm made for God. I'm made to know Him and love Him and be with Him in a fellowship that is satisfying to my soul. And because it's satisfying to my soul, it's glorifying to His name. That's the end of the story. Everything else is means. I love this verse. Christ suffered once for sins, my sins, my, my sins of exchanging God for other things. He died so that I could get to Him and finally discover what my treasure is, my, my value in Him is. That's the first thing that has to happen to, to restore God to the center is that Christ must die for our unrighteous exchange. And he did. And that is sweet. That's the heart of the gospel. But it's not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is God. Here's the second thing that has to happen. So now, now the wrath of God is removed. My sins are atoned for. I don't bear any guilt anymore. But what about my preference for other stuff? That's got to get changed. You, you can't just have the objective work done and leave me in preferring what sex can get, money can get, and power can get over God. That's not salvation. Something's got to change here as well as in this gap. And there's a name for this. It's called new birth or it's called new creation, or it's called effectual calling. And the verse I'm going to choose here now, actually two verses, to connect it with the theme is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Listen for the themes of glory and light, treasure. So here we are at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse… I'll start at verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled… It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, here come crucial phrases, to keep them from seeing, this is what nobody can see apart from what's going to happen in verse 6, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The light of gospel of glory of Christ who is image of God. That is massive. Oh, that phrase is massive. That's what nobody sees. You know that because you've told them the gospel. They just look at you. That's, they don't see it as glorious, right? They don't see light and they don't see glory in Christ as image of their maker. Nothing happens. Verse 6, here's what must happen. For 
God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's comparing now conversion to creation in the beginning. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give, and now he's back to these phrases, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Light in both texts, glory in both texts, four and six, glory of Christ, glory of God, who is the image of God in the face of Christ. It's the same reality, light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, light of the knowledge of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the difference is here, Satan is blinding us to it in verse 4, and in verse 6, God is overcoming that blindness and saying in your heart, if you're a believer, this is how you got saved. You know, isn't it wonderful that we can be saved, we can be born again, we can be made a new creation and not know all the ways that God did it, so that you can spend the rest of your life learning what happened to you. That's why when I said up here, was it last night, night before? I can't remember. When I said I, I don't remember being saved at age six, I know exactly what happened. I know better what happened than a lot of people who remember their conversion but aren't biblically taught. <laughs> they think they did this or that or whatever, and they don't know how they got saved. They're all confused about it. They've been taught really bad stuff about how they got saved. But this verse says, what happened was that when I was six, or when you were whatever, God said, let there be light. And suddenly, the Bible, and particularly the story of Christ, the way He is and the way He worked to save, went bright. And you saw it. That's, that's beautiful. That is bright and glorious and desirable and my treasure forever. That's what happened. Conversion is the, the blinding work of Satan is overcome, it's lifted, the light of the gospel streams into the heart. The heart, I referred to a, last night I referred to a, a template or a mold that's in your heart because you're creating the image of God. Everybody knows God. That's what I had in mind, that there's a, a mold in here and it's shaped. It's a gospel-shaped mold. It's a Christ-shaped mold. And when, when God digs out all the dirt that's down in the mold, keeping the, the template from fitting into the mold, and when He digs it all out and the gospel lands there, you say, click, yes. Everything is now falling into place. This is beautiful. This is what I was made for. This is why the universe makes sense. This is glorious. That, that's what has to happen besides the cross. The cross, in fact, I would argue, purchases this. God bought that for His elect when the gospel comes to you the Holy Spirit moves in. God says, let there be light. The light that goes on is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And henceforth, the Son of the glory of God is now repositioned back where He was. And the planets start to come into order. It may take several years in your life, really. I mean, it does, right? You, you, you get... You get 
God back in his place, and for years and years, these, these planets have worn really destructive orbits in your life. And, and as soon as you put the sun back where he belongs by new birth, purchased by the cross, you, you sense how disordered the orbits are. And it may take you a month or a year until the sex orbit and the money orbit and the power orbit start to, they're not colliding anymore. They're smooth, they're, they're pleasant, they're God-glorifying in their limited proper places here. Everything is beautiful in this solar system now. It only happens perfectly when we die or when Christ comes, but we are on the way once this verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 happens in our life. Now, there's one other thing that he has to do, and I'm going to give you some examples from the effects it has on money, sex, and power quickly, but one more thing, and this is, this is crucial. So, Christ dies for us and covers our, our horrible uh, unrighteousness of truth suppression and God exchanging so that the guilt of it is removed and the penalty is taken away. And then he moves on us to uh, take away our rebellion uh, and our blindness, restore the glory of God as the treasure of our lives. And now what? Suppose that happened to you 20 years ago or two years ago or two months ago. Now what? The Christian life is, is not fixed at conversion. It's begun at conversion. And the process of getting the planets in their orbit and of maintaining the beauty of God at the center of your affections is warfare to the end. So if, if you feel that, so do I. Nobody in this room cherishes God, treasures God, delights in God, is satisfied with God, treasures God as fully and completely and consistently as you ought. None of you do. Which means every one of us every day falls short, and we are not told to be passive in this warfare. And so the verse on this third point is... Second uh, Corinthians 3.18, which is just a few verses earlier from 4.4 4 to 6. And the point here is that God goes on revealing His glory to you through the Word of God so that step by step you increasingly and repeatedly restore Him and His beauty at the center of your affections. This is so variable, I- I'm tempted to say it's just incalculably variable, meaning the morning and the mid-morning and the noon and the afternoon and the night are all different. Your heart for God is different at 10 and noon and 4 and 8. It's different. Your, Your emotions are just like this. Nobody lives like this. Nobody. And from week to week and month to month and year to year, and saints are allowed to move into seasons of great Darkness, nights of the soul. Here's what that verse says, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now notice, beholding the glory of the Lord is a present tense, ongoing action, not a one-time action, ongoing, and so is being transformed, ongoing, not one time. So let me read it again with that in mind. We all, with unveiled face, you have to read the context to see why he says that, there was a veil lying over Israel, and and a veil is being lifted for us now to, to behold the Lord. The veil is lifted, that's like God taking away the blinders. The veil is lifted, and we are beholding daily, weekly, Sunday by Sunday in preaching, daily by day by day in reading our Bibles, we are beholding the glory of the Lord and are thus being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. You become most like what you admire most. That's what this is saying. You become most like, progressively, what you admire most. If you admire the glory of God most and all His ways, you will become more and more conformed to that. That's what it says. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Degree, degree. Which is so encouraging because none of us has arrived. So there's the cross once for all to pay for my truth-suppressing, God-exchanging unrighteousness. There's new birth once for all. You don't get born again. The, the heart of stone is taken out. The blindness is removed. The spirit is put within. God is restored as my treasure. And then the rest of my life, beholding the glory of the Lord, I am being changed from one degree of glory to the next. So week by week in preaching, Day by day in reading your Bibles, conferences like this, I'm praying that right now this is happening. We are being changed from one degree of glory to another. So let's move toward a close by asking how this affects money, sex, and and power. Let's start with money. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Let's give one text for each, one brief text for each money, sex, and power. How does having God become your supreme, all-satisfying treasure affect the potential of money for good? 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. Paul is uh, writing to Corinth to Uh, stir them up to be generous for the poor saints in Jerusalem by giving them the example of the saints up in in Macedonia where Philippi and Thessalonica are, and he wants the Corinthians to look at that example and then be fired up to be generous. How does he do that? Listen, this is remarkable. We want you to know, you Corinthians, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given in the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That is the most important passage on money and the glory of God I know of in the Bible. Let me say it again. Where did did this joy come from? 
in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. So there's abundant joy. But it can't be that the gospel has removed trouble. In fact, the gospel has increased trouble. It says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. So the gospel came, grace came down, verse 1, and affliction came up. Now, grace came down and affliction came up. (laughs) And in that affliction, joy exploded. So clearly the joy is not based on the absence of affliction. And then it says one other thing. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. So sorry, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. They stayed poor. At least for a season. They're in extreme affliction, their abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty. So now you've got joy in the middle, grace over the top, affliction at the front end, poverty at the back end, and this explosive joy. That's what I'm after. That is what I'm after in this world. That's what I'm preaching for. That's what I'm living for. I like it when affliction lightens up. I like it when we don't have poverty. But I want this at any cost. This thing at any cost. This abundant joy at any cost. And where does it come from? Not from the absence of affliction, not from the absence of wealth, but the presence of grace. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, and now here's the point, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. What happens to money when people get saved, really saved? By saved, I mean explosive joy in God, not things and not health. What happens? It says their abundance of joy understand, in God, not stuff, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Do you see what what that means? That means that the generosity flowing to the poor in Jerusalem, that stream of generosity is joy. He says, joy overflowed in generosity. Money moving in love becomes a testimony to the satisfying grace of God. That's the meaning of money for Christians. Money is a display. How you use money displays the all-satisfying worth of God. I've often said to people, the point of your money is to show that money is not your God. That's the point of money. The point of money is to use it in a way to show it's not your God. God is your God. The point of money is to use it in a way that to show that what it can get is not what's going to satisfy you. You have been satisfied in God. And so in your poverty and in your affliction, you are overflowingly generous. You have resources nobody can account for, which is why people ask a reason for the hope that is in you that you're giving away money when you're so poor and so afflicted have God, and He's everything. 
If you have God, you have everything. It's a beautiful thing to use money that way. And I pray that commission will be among the most generous people in the world. Number two, sex. So an illustration of how this all-satisfying God now through new birth and through seeing His glory day by day changes your sex life. I'm at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul is talking to a group of people who are about to be swayed by some false teachers who are uh, overly ascetic. You know what ascetic means? Um, excessively uh, telling people that uh, food and sex are bad. Listen, you'll hear this. This is chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, in, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. Now, what do these demons teach? You'd think demons teach more sex, more food. They teach the opposite. Listen. Falling prey to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. You see what's behind this false teaching? Sex is dirty, and foods are for second-class Christians. You should be very abstemious. Abstain, abstain, abstain for as much as you can. Just eat, eat this little as you can, and as, as, let, it, let it taste really bad, and over here, avoid marriage, because that's where sex happens, and uh, go out in the desert and be a monk, and restrain yourself, and, and put your uh, garments on inside out so they scratch. And you, then you might get turned on by your imagination. It didn't work, by the way. Um, those, those monks really struggled, and they still do. Now, what is, Paul, what is Paul's response to that false teaching of no sex, little food? Here's his response in verse 3. That, namely this um, marriage and food, God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, truth, not suppress the truth, know the truth of the infinite value of God in His ways. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for then it is made holy by the Word of God in prayer. That's an amazing passage of Scripture. Sex is made holy. Food is made holy by the Word of God and all that it says about food and sex and prayer, meaning our offering up to God, our lives and our devotion in the way we handle sex, in the way we eat food, and thus the, the sexual aspect of our life and the eating aspect of our life become reverent and holy and beautiful and precious in all their pleasures, not in spite of all their pleasures. God, God did not create this world merely as a set of idle possibilities. This world in its physicality does not exist merely to tempt you to idolatry. That's the bad way to think about the world. 
This world is given as a means of loving people and worshiping God. And if your sexuality and your food habits reflect your gratitude to God and your orientation on God is your supreme value, then those sexual experiences and those eating experiences become worship. He's, uh, he gave us sex to show that He is better than sex. Just like money is given to show that money is not our God, sex is given to show that God is better than sex. So that through sex, in all of its God-appointed legitimate ways, whether it be faithfulness in covenant-keeping marriage or chastity in covenant-keeping singleness, God is better and a, and a beautiful giver. Lastly and briefly, power. We um, glorify God in our use of power when we realize that all power is God's. We live powerfully for God when we live in the power of God. And I've already given you the key texts. I'll just read a couple of them. 2 Corinthians 4.7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So if we treasure God's power with a deep recognition. This is back to the power mongers I was referring to earlier who have, who have right theology and totally abusive in their relationships. The problem there is that this theoretical thing called the power of God is savored as a kind of a scheme out there that is then manipulated for personal gain instead of it having the effect of saying, you are a clay pot. Humble yourself with deep, sweet, broken-hearted, glad gratitude for my power, and you won't use it that way. That's what that verse, I think, implies. We are His. We have a treasure, God's power, God's glory, and it's in a clay pot. It's in a jar of clay so that we, we want to do relationships, okay? So all you leaders, and there's lots of leaders in this room, you want to manage relationships and lead churches and lead movements in a way that people feel this man has been humbled and broken by God's power and grace, and He wants us to see Him. That's what it's going to feel like when you lead well. One last verse. I suppose this verse, and I'm going to close with this, has been used by me so many hundreds of times over the years that, that no verse comes close to being my conscious effort to when I preach or when I do anything, to get myself in a position where I'm doing, but God is empowering. That's a miracle. If, if, that, if that can be pulled off, it's a miracle. Here's the verse. 1 Peter 4.11, let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So you, you serve. Let Him who serves 
serve, but you do it in the strength that God supplies. Why? Because the giver gets the glory. So that in everything, God may be glorified. So I'm sitting there in my pew on the, before I go up to preach for 33 years, and this verse, more than any other verse, I'm just sitting there saying, oh God, right now, I, in as much as it lies within me, renounce all self-reliance. I know I have to, it's my mouth that's going to be talking, my hands are going to be waving, my mind's going to be thinking, I'm going to be feeling, but God, it says, do it all, do it all in the strength that you supply. So right now, I am saying with Jesus, you can do nothing apart from me. John 15, 5. You can do nothing, Piper, apart from me. I, I, re- I accept that, I embrace that, and I welcome, I welcome your empowering help. And then I step up and I start talking. And periodically through the message, the the thought comes, you're starting to rely on yourself or rely on me, rely on me, trust me. Because when we trust His power, then He gets the glory. And that's why, that's why we exist, for Him to get glory. So money, sex, and power. Three precious gifts of God. Three dangers that can destroy our souls. Yes, they can. Yesterday's second message. And three potentialities or possibilities. And the difference between the danger and the possibility is the light. If the light has been shed abroad in our hearts, the blindness has been removed, God has said, let there be Light made us people of the light, caused us to walk in the light. The light is the treasure of God that is superior to all other treasures. And that all-satisfying treasure brings, like the sun at the center, all the orbits of money, sex, and power into their God-glorifying, soul-satisfying orbits. Father, I pray now for commission and all the folks here that you would open their eyes wider and wider every day, like it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that they would behold the glory of God every day and be changed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of the all-satisfying God so that the money in their lives and the sex in their lives and the power in their lives and every other planet orbiting in their lives would come into beautiful, harmonious, God-centered, Christ-exalting orbit around the blazing sun of your all-satisfying self. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.